Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dough. My name is Noel. I am here with Rob and Michael once again. This is the Diaspora of Yasharel, a Sabbath group where we focus on Yahusha HaMashiach as our Messiah, but also Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel and his set-apart ways, which is the Torah. And we'll be hearing a lot about that tonight, I suspect, in a very special get-together or study on the Hebrew epistle of Yehuda or Jude. I don't know if anybody else has ever done a study on uh, the Hebrew epistle of Yehuda. So this is really exciting. Just like in our uh, last two studies we did on the Hebrew Hebrew revelation, what we call the confidential councils of Yehuda, as well as the Hebrew gospel of Yochan and John. You can always check those out if you're on YouTube land. And yeah, so let's just dive right into it. Rob, would you like to open us with prayer tonight? Yes. Dear Father, we thank you for everything that you give and provide. You are the great I am. Father, may you bless this time that we have here in studying your word and discussing it. And may your Ruach be upon us. May you guide us in our words. And may we learn more and better understand you through these words. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Well, once again, welcome, everybody. Some of you here is your first time. Um, so we meet every 8 p.m. Eastern time at the end of Sabbath. And our theme verse around here, we just went through Revelation. Our theme verse is Revelation 14, 12, which states that here is the the patience of the set apart, the saints, those who uh, keep the the testimony of Yahusha as well as the commands of the Father. And so, again, we put a heavy focus on Yahusha Hamashiach. You know, of course, that's he's our Messiah, as well as his father, Yahuwah, uh, the, that he has uh, these instructions in righteous living. We call that the Torah. Those are the commands that we are um, expected and asked to to keep if we are to be set apart and walking on the narrow path. So with that, Rob, I'm going to hand it over to you, and you could read uh, Yehuda chapter 1, or the only, I guess, really, <laughs> the whole book. Take, yeah. take it away. Right. This is Yehuda, the Hebrew gospel. Yehuda, a servant of Yeshua, Hamashiach, but a brother of Yaakov, the sent one, to those set apart in Yahweh, the father and hidden in Yeshua HaMashiach. May Yahuwah give you much love and steadfast love and shalom and mercy. Beloved brothers, after I wanted to write to you about our set-apartness, I found it needful to rebuke you by writing that you should strengthen yourselves in the faith which was given to the set-apart one. For some sons of man come in among them of those who were already written up for this condemnation, and they were wicked ones, and the invalidated and invalidated the steadfast love of Yahweh in arrogance. And they did not believe in Yahweh and in his Mashiach. But I wanted to make you known that he who brought his people out of Mitzrayim killed those who did not believe two times. And also the messengers who 
sinned and they were thrust down from from above, they are hidden, they are being hidden in darkness until the future day of judgment. And also the, the places Saddam and Amorah, who likewise became a proverb and bore the fire of Gehinnim forever. And likewise, those who despise the authority and curse the kingship. But the messenger Michael, while disputing with Hasatan because of the grave of, Mo of Moshe, did not even curse him so, but said to him, Hadon condemns you. But these people curse while they know nothing, and also what they do know they despise. And woe to them, for they are walking on the road of Canaan and falling into the temptation of Balaam because of some prophet and are being killed because of the dispute of the Korah. And they are prideful with your gifts, and they are as clouds without water, which go with the wind and trees that do not bear fruit. As, and as the waves of the sea that throw out mere mire and mud. And, and Enoch, the seventh from Adam, also prophesied about this and said, Look, Ha'adan will come with thousands of thousands, ten thousands of set-apart ones, to execute judgment on the wicked ones because of their evil deeds. For there is no firmament, firmness in his mouth. There inside is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. But you, beloved brother, you must remember the word which was said from the beginning by the sent ones of our Adon, Yeshua HaMashiach, that they said to you that in the last days, there will be scoffers beside you who will walk after their desires. These are in the flesh and not in the Ruach. But you, beloved brothers, strengthen yourselves in your faith by the Ruach HaKodesh and stand in the love of Yahuwah and wait for the mercies of our Adon Yeshua for eternal life. And also you yourselves must be merciful. Indeed, some of you are with good deeds, but keep a distance from the sinners. But he who is able to keep you without doubting and to set you before Ha'adam without any sin, to him be honor and glory and kingship from everlasting and unto everlasting. Amen. That is all of Jude, chapter 1. I'll pass it over to Michael for commentary. That's only chapter one, Rob? Okay. Um, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Um, as Noel said, I hope we don't steal each other's thunder today. This is uh, a lot, of, lot to go over, though. So um, even if we do, it'd be good to hear everybody's perspective. Um, so first, I want to start off that, uh, you know, Jude 1.1, he, he identifies himself as the brother of James. So that... It means he probably was not the apostle named Jude, who was called the son of James, Luke 6, 16. Um, and then I was, you know, I was doing a lot of research, and you'll see many similarities between Second Peter, mainly chapter 2, and Jude. 
um, so much that most scholars agree that either one letter used the, the other directly or they both drew from a common source. So I saw someone did the study and they compared the Greek text versions of 2 Peter 2 through 3, 3, which was 426 words to Jude, verse 4 through 18, 311 words. That resulted in 80 words in common and seven words of substituted synonyms. So you're going to see a lot of similarities between 2 Peter and Jude today. Um, I'm going to start off with number one, reading the Hebrew. It says, uh, Yehuda, a servant of Yeshua HaMashiach, but a brother of Yaakov, sent one to those set apart in Yahweh, the father and hidden in Yeshua HaMashiach. Um, so as I said earlier, Jude was a blood relative of Yeshua, but he considered himself only as a bondservant. That's amazing. It shows how humble he was and how we should be. Uh, this guy was literally, you know, the, the brother of the Messiah and considered himself a bondservant. Um, that's the first thing. Uh, number three, I'm going to read both because there's a lot of interesting differences. Um, so in the Greek, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints. And in the Hebrew, it says, Beloved brothers, after I, write, after I wanted to write to you about our set-apartness, I found it needful to rebuke you by writing that you should strengthen yourselves in the faith, which was given to the set-apart ones. So the obvious one is, you know, our common salvation. And then in the Hebrew, it says, about our set-apartness. That, that's so different. Um, if, if you know me personally, you know one of my pet peeves is... is, is that our, our our totality of salvation hasn't happened yet. You know, that's that's for the resurrection. And if you're reading this in the Greek, you know, you're just you just read it, you're saved. It's just our common salvation. I'm 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 with Jude here. But in the Hebrew it says about our set apartness. That's such a huge difference in my opinion. And it, it because the Greek that doesn't show you how to be set apart. The Hebrew tells you you need to be. Um, the second part that's different, it says, um, in the Greek it says, you should earnest, earnestly contend for the faith, where in the Hebrew it says, strengthen yourself in the faith. Again, I just think it's more, uh, it's more Hebrew, you know, strengthening yourself in the faith instead of earnestly contend. You can take it many ways that you're earnestly contending, um, but strengthen is kind of straightforward there. And then finally, saints and set apart ones. Um, Saints, again, can go many different ways. <laughs> There's many people throughout these decades and centuries that have called themselves saints. Hebrew says set apart ones. Um, so this is not my study, but I, I heard it through a YouTube channel here, and I thought that was pretty cool. And I'm not sure it's 100%, but the Greek word for saints is hagios, H-A-G-E-E-O-S. It comes from the Hebrew word chag, C-H-A-G, H-2282. So on a holy day, you would say Chag Samiak, joyous festival, as in happy festival. So basically what it's saying is if you are a saint, Greek Hagios, then you partake in the feasts, because that's where they got it from. So Hagios and Hag, um, like Pentecost and Shavuot, C-H-A-G and Hagios for the saints is H-G-E-O-S. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, saints and set-apart ones, if basically what the study said is this, if you are you want to be a saint, you need to do the, you're a feast keeper. Um, uh, number four, I'll read the Hebrew. 
For some sons of men came in among them of those who are already written up for this condemnation. And they were wicked ones and invalidated the steadfast love of Yahweh in arrogance. And they did not believe in Yahweh and his Mashiach. Um, there's many different differences. I'm just going to state one of them. Uh, so in the Hebrew, it says that in, they invalidated the steadfast love of Yahweh in arrogance. But in the Greek, it says lasciviousness. And the, the, the definition of that is unbridled lust, excess, wantonness, outrageousness, shamelessness, insolence. Um, I don't know. I think uh, the Hebrew does a better, ver better, you know, makes a better point in that in that verse. Um, my first Second Peter cross reference today would be uh, number one. But false prophets also arose among you, among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Um, so that's, like I was saying in the Greek, very similar. So if men, certain men crept in unaware who were before of old, you know, um, turning the grace of Yah into lasciviousness, where in Second Peter it says, but false prophets also arose among you and false teachers among you. So it's basically, that's, that's what I was saying at the very beginning where, you know, the point is very similar in both. Um, number five, I'm going to read the Hebrew. But I want to make... You known that he who brought his people out of Mitzrayim killed those who did not believe two times. Um, so Jude here reminds us of what happened in Numbers 14. Yah delivered the people of Israel, people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. They went out of Egypt and, with unintended delays, came to a place called Kadesh Barnea, on the threshold of the Promised Land. So they didn't enter it. So at, at Kadesh Barnea, the people refused to trust Yah and go into the Promised Land of Canaan. Therefore, almost none of the adult generation who left Egypt entered the promised land. That, you know, that should worry people. You know, you, you know, just because he redeemed you, you know, they didn't make it into the promised land. So we should continue in our, straight, in our, in our faith um, to the end, as our own Messiah tells us to do. Um, Strong's word for destroyed. So I didn't read that, but I'll, I'll summarize. It says, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believeth not so that <clears throat> strong's word for destroyed is a policy a policy so it's used two other times in the new testament and both times it's talking about so it's talking about the day of the lord's coming in luke 17 and it's also the parable of the marriage feast so i'll read the marriage feast first in matthew 22 everybody knows the story i'll read some of it but the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed same word those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. So he destroyed his initial guests, if you recall the story. Um, and then we also, also in the day of the Lord's coming in Luke 17, 26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So again, this is a similar pattern here where Yah, you know, Yah destroys people. And I gave you two examples in the New Testament as well. Um, two more. 
but they're long, so stay with me here. Um, number six in the Hebrew, and this might be some thunder stealing, but you know, I can't help it. Everybody's going to be talking about Enoch, guys. Um, so I'm going to read the Hebrew. And also the messengers who sinned and were thrust down from above, they are being hidden in darkness until the future day of judgment. Messengers are also angels. They left their first estate, as the Greek says. Now, I thought this was pretty cool. Um, Genesis 6, Jude 6, and Enoch 6 all talk about the fallen angels. That's, there's your 666. Um, I'm going to read some of the Enoch. Everybody knows the Gen 6 verse. I just read you the Jude 6 verse. I'll read you some of the Enoch verse. So, number two, and the angels, the sons of heaven, saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, Come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the children of men, and let us beget for ourselves children. And Semyaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear that you may not wish this deed to be done, and that I alone will pay for this great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us swear an oath and bind one another with curses, so not to alter this plan, but to carry out this plan effectively. Then they all swore together and all bound one another with curses to it. And they were in all two hundred, and they came down on Artis, which is the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called the Mount Hermon because they swore and bound one with the curse. And it, then it goes on to naming them. I'm not going to do that, but I will put it in the chat. Different names of the, the angels. Um, okay, so I'm going to read some extra biblical books also talking about giants. So Baruch 3.24, O Israel, how great is the house of Yah, and how vast the territory that he possesses. It is great and has no bounds. It is high and immeasurable. Praise Yah. The giants were born there who are famous of old, great in stature, expert in war. Yah did not choose them nor give them the way of knowledge, so they perished because they had no wisdom. They perished through their folly. So that's Baruch 3, 24 through 28. It says, it's talking about the New Jerusalem. The giants were born there and because they had no wisdom. Um, Sirach 16, 6. The Lord's flaming anger will break out against a small gathering of sinners or a disobedient nation. He did not forgive those ancient giants who rebelled against him, confident in their own strength. Um, Wisdom of Solomon, 14, 6. For even in the beginning, when arrogant giants were perishing, the hope of the world took refuge on a raft, and guided by your hand, left to the world, the seed of a new generation. For blessed is the wood by which righteousness comes. I love that last part. Um, okay, so back to the Greek on number six. Um, it talks about the angels left their first estate, or they didn't keep their first estate and left their own habitation. So the Strong's word for habitation is okiterion, and the def definition is habitation, dwelling place, abode. It's only used one other time, and that is 2 Corinthians 5. And I thought that was pretty cool. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from Yah, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. That word dwelling is the same word as habitation. So we're longing to be going back to the, you know, the paradise. So it's basically saying the angels left the place where we are going, the New Jerusalem. Okay, so this is my last note, but it is pretty long. Uh, number seven. Hope you guys are enjoying this. Uh, read the Hebrew. Uh, and also the places Sodom and Amorah, who likewise became a proverb and bore the fire of Gehenna forever. So... In the Hebrew, it doesn't give a description of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Greeks stated, and the cities about them are giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. That's huge. That's a big difference. Why wouldn't the Hebrew admit that? So, 
you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, or they're also called the cities of the plain. And I, and I, I was reading about that. Then it kind of clicked that I think the Hebrew revelation talked about that the cities of the plain or streets of the plain or something have been used historically and in modern discourse as metaphors for homosexuality. You know, that's what the Greek says, right? Fornication, going after strange flesh. But I want to read a few descriptions of Sodom and Gomorrah and show that it's way more than that, way more than that. Um, so Isaiah associates Sodom with shameless sinning and tells Babylon that it will end like those two cities. Jeremiah and Lamentations associate Sodom and Gomorrah with adultery and lies. It prophesied that the fate of Edom and predicts the fate of Babylon and uses Sodom as a comparison. Ezekiel compares Jerusalem to Sodom, saying, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread. That probably means money. They didn't go hungry. Careless ease was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. So it's also taking care of the poor. It's it's way more than just homosexuality. And Amos, Yah tells Israel that although he treated them like Sodom and Gomorrah, they still did not repent. You can still repent. In Zephaniah, Zephaniah tells Moab and Ammon that they will end up like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this one I love. This is Wisdom of Solomon 10. I highly recommend reading it, um, that chapter. Wisdom rescued a righteous man when ungodly were perishing. He escaped the fire that ascended on the five cities, two angels, five cities. Evidence of their wickedness still remains, a continually smoking wasteland, plants bearing fruit that does not ripen, and a pillar of salt standing as a monument to an unbelieving soul. For because they passed wisdom by, they passed wisdom by, they not only were hindered from recognizing the good, but also left for mankind a reminder of their folly, so that their failures can never go unnoticed. Sirach says, Yah did not spare the neighbors a lot, whom he loathed on account of their insolence, which is rude or disrespectful behavior. In 3 Maccabees, the high priest Simon says that Yah consumed with fire and soul for the men of Sodom, who acted arrogantly, who are notorious for their vices, and you made them an example to those who should come afterwards. Um, finally, 2 Ezra describes the signs of the end times, one of which is that the sea of Sodom shall cast up fish. And also... Ezra says that Abraham prayed for the people of Sodom. So that's very humble to do that. We should be doing that. We should be doing that. Um, finally, last word study, and I'll hand it off to Noel. Um, back to the Greek, the Strong's word for vengeance. So let me try to find it. So, you know, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So that Strong's word for vengeance is diken, D-I-K-E-N. And it's also used in 2 Thessalonians 1, starting on 5. So... This is a plain indication of Yah's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of Yah, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for Yah to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to those who, who are afflicted. And to us as well, when Yeshua will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know Yah and to those who do not obey the gospel. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. That same word, destruction, is the same as vengeance. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Before I hand it off to Noel, I think it does an amazing um, summary. And it also says, those who do not obey the gospel, you should want it. If, if the gospel is only some construct thought in your head, <laughs> I don't know, you might want to rethink your gospel. So I hope you enjoyed it. I did but uh, I will split it here and hand it off to Noel. Thank you. I'm amazed 
that we even have this letter. And I'm not even talking about the Hebrew for the moment. I'm talking even about the Greek. There are 66 books that were selected for canon, and Jude or Yehuda was chosen amongst them. Why was it chosen? I've asked myself that question for probably 20 years now. And I'll maybe get a little bit into why, uh, why I've asked that question. One of the things to consider is, was this a one-off for Yehuda? Uh, did he write no other letters? Now, hopefully next week we're going to be reading from the epistle, the letter of Yaakov, uh, which is, a, in my opinion, is a masterful letter. It's many people's favorite uh, book of the Bible. There is no possible way that Yaakov wrote that one letter and go, okay, I'm done. I'm good. I, that, that was, you know, that's my magnum opus. I did it on the first try. Uh, you know, I've never written any letters before, but this is it. And uh, here you go, canon people. Put this, you know, put this on the shelf and Constantine put this into the Bible. And so you would think that Yaakov, as well as Yehuda, wrote other letters. Why did only one survive for both? Uh, my guess is, and we've been talking about this a lot over the last few months, when Yerushalayim was destroyed in 70 AD, we know for a fact that the, that the church of Yerushalayim fled. They, they crossed the uh, Jordan River over to modern Jordan, uh, kind of the Petra area, and they were, they were hanging out there. And then that church goes into oblivion. We've talked about the reasons why that is. Uh, and the thing is, is that when clearly... When Yehuda writes this letter, as well as Yaakov, uh, I, I bring in Yaakov here because they're brothers, obviously. They weren't thinking, like, you read this letter, like, it was not in his line of thinking of, like, I'm writing a book of the Bible right now. This, this is going to go, in, you know, into the New Testament, you know, after the letters of Paul, right before Revelation or wherever it's positioned. Uh, there, there's no way he's thinking that. And I think that when they fled... Uh, Yerushalayim, uh, you know, almost all of their work was destroyed with them. Like, they had to leave everything behind. Yahushua gave strict instructions, don't even go back for a cloak. Just get out of there. I think they hightailed it. They ran. They didn't go back for this stuff. They didn't go back for their library. It was destroyed. We lost tons of stuff. So, I state that because we have 13 letters from Shaul. He's, he was not in Jerusalem, right? Yaakov and, and Yehuda were. And that's why I say it's it's really a miracle that we have this book. And um, yeah, and I'll talk a little bit more about the book itself. I remember a discussion I had with with my father about 15 years ago where I was analyzing Jude and questioning why it was in scripture. It 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 came across to me at the time like cliff notes. Actually, I still kind of hold that. I, I again, I, I, I don't really believe this. This may be controversial for some others. You're not even going to think twice about it. I don't see this book as if we're going to define, um, if we're going to define scripture as Holy Spirit breathed. Then I would not define this book as scripture. Uh, I would define Revelation as such. I would define. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is such. This, I think, is some dude. He's not just a dude. He's the brother of Yaakov. But he's literally just writing a letter, probably to his congregation in Yerushalayim. Um, and uh, it comes across to me like cliff notes, which I'll describe in a second. There's not a lot. What I'm saying is there's not a lot of original content here. Uh, what was he truly saying? Well, 
I've come to appreciate Jude much more in recent years. First, with the uh, <laughs> with the flat Earth uh, revelation back in 2015. Unfortunately, um, the, what I came to love about this book is no longer in this book. Uh, he does quote from Enoch, but whoever translated this, and I, I do believe, I think that this book, what we're seeing, predates the Greek. Um, I, I've had some questions about some other things. I think this predates the Greek. And clearly, whoever uh, translated this book into the Greek was a uh, probably a lover of Enoch because he flourishes, you know, he added some extra flourishes there, which we'll get into a little bit. And also, I think that also answers Michael's question about why uh, the Hebrew epistle doesn't talk about the strange flesh or homosexuality of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think to the Hebrew thinkers, they saw, they weren't thinking in terms of homosexuality. That For me, that is a, that it is true that there were homosexuals there and that was an abomination, but it can also be big misdirection because the church uses this to say like, oh, look at the city of San Francisco. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's like, actually, no, when you do a study, and Michael did a phenomenal job at it, when you do a study on what Sodom and Gomorrah was, it was breaking Torah. It was complete contempt towards the law of heaven. And it was creating a human law that in order to obey that law, you had to disobey the law of heaven, the Torah. And uh, the book of Jasher does a phenomenal job at that as well. So he wasn't even thinking in terms of homosexuality. I almost think that the, the person who translated this into the Greek, he was trying to give context. Because, you know, the people would go like, what's Sodom and Gomorrah? It's like, oh, they were homosexuals. Oh, okay, that makes sense. He destroyed the city of homosexuals. Um, all right, so... Anyways, now now the some of that has gone out of there, but I've again learned to appreciate this in our uh, quote unquote New Testament section of the Bibles in, in total new ways, and we'll get into that. All right, so in as little as one chapter, Yehuda mentions at least ten events from the Old Testament. I'll go through them real quick. There, at least, there could be more, but this is what I numbered. Uh, we see the uh, we see the faith. Of obedience given to the saints. That was an event. We see people brought out of Mitraim, out of Egypt. That was an event that we call that the Exodus. We see the unbelievers destroyed twice. So technically that could make that 11 events. I clumped that into one. He, there are two times where uh, Yuhua destroyed the people for their disobedience. We see that the angels uh, that sinned were judged. Uh, that's the fourth. Number five, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Uh, number six, Moses' burial. Number seven, uh, Cain and Abel. Number eight, Balaam tempted by prophet. Number nine, rebellion of Korah. Number 10, Enoch prophesied. Interestingly enough, uh, I, I should note that there are two extra biblical, what we would call extra biblical, uh, outside of canon books mentioned here that are all revolved around Torah. One is is the angels that were judged. Uh, that specifically, in my opinion, comes from Enoch. Yes, it is in Genesis 6, but we don't see the judgment that he's talking about specifically mentioned in Genesis 6. It, it is very clear in Enoch. And also uh, at Moshe's burial with Michael and uh, Hasatan, that comes from a book that uh, we don't really have anymore, uh, The Ascension of Moses. So it's kind of interesting how he's lumping these two events into um, not only these two events into Torah, but also as Michael has commented, there is a lot 
in common with Second Peter. And second, when he gets to it, Second Peter quotes it differently. But when we get to it with Yehuda, he's he actually is. He tells you he's quoting from a source. We don't have that source anymore. Maybe we do, and I I totally missed it. I botched it. I was looking. I'm like, where does this source exist? It's gone. And I've I've commented on this multiple times that there are so many books that are completely gone now. Uh, it is my theory that Genesis uh, Genesis was what uh genesis uh moses writing genesis as well as the writer of jasher were not sourcing from each other they were sourcing from a book um a common book that is is gone from us now and i think there was a whole bunch of that and including probably books written by uh adam and some others all right so we see those 10 events in here in one chapter and there is a point to all of this then we see there are nine persons mentioned in here that i counted they are yahuwah now, that's a big one, because in the Greek, he's never mentioned. We hear uh, 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 Dias, or, or, you know, you could say God, or Elohim, uh, but his name has been stripped out. I counted, I think, five times that they stripped his name out in one chapter, in one letter. It's gone five times. So we see that restored in the Hebrew, which is really awesome to see. So that's one person, Yahuwah. We see Michael, the archangel. We see Hasatan. We see Moshe, uh, Cain, Balaam, Korah, Enoch, and Adam. And then we see four places. We see Egypt, Sodom, Gomorrah, and Gehenna. All right. And. All right. I'm going to. So think about that. And I'm going to touch base back on that and the importance of these events in the context of this letter in what we call, quote unquote, the New Testament. Now, in verse one. I found this really interesting. It says that Yaakov, he called him the sent one. He didn't call him James the just. He called him the sent one. Let me read the Greek again. I don't think he calls him anything like that. He just says, uh, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. All right. And then in the Hebrew, he says, the, uh, a brother of Yaakov, the sent one. So I thought that was really interesting. And uh, I... I I, I'm not reading the Hebrew in front of me. Uh, Ronit is in here tonight. She might be. And the, I would be interested to see if the word is malak in Hebrew, which could mean messenger or angel. Okay, so if I'm, if I'm correct on my hunch, Yehuda is calling his brother Yaakov a manger, uh, an angel or a messenger. Clearly, Yaakov was the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. And, all right, so I just lost my, my thought on that. But, oh, yeah, so that carries us over to Revelation. And we read about in chapters 1 through 3, the angels of the churches, the messengers. And the, the idea is, is that these are, um, you know, the pastors, the leaders of these churches. It, it, he's not saying that Yaakov is actually a spiritual entity from heaven. He's calling him, an, you know, a, a messenger. And that actually plays into this, um, this letter considerably. Another thing that I noticed here in verse 1 is that uh, he only calls himself the brother of Yaakov. Michael touched on this. He does not refer to himself as a brother of Yahusha. Now, this kind of plays into what we were talking about last Thursday night when we read from another book. And a big discussion came up, kind of controversial, um, on whether or not uh, Miriam, the mother of Yahusha, had any other children. It is my personal belief 
my conclusion that she had no other children, that all brothers and sisters of Yahusha were, um, were through Joseph's former marriage. And I get that not from tradition, not from oral tradition, not because I'm, uh, I am not Catholic, but simply because all these books that I have read that have stated that, uh, black and white, it's pretty clear, and all these books that you know didn't make it into canon, but have some great historical reference to it. So I just, I don't want to make a big point of that, but I do find that interesting, that he doesn't say, hey, I'm also the brother of Messiah. Let's see, what else do I have here in verse 1? Oh, he is writing to the, the set-apart. Now, in the Greek, and, and Michael touched on this too, the, the Greek uses the word, uh, or at least in the King James, uh, it says, uh, to them that are sanctified. And ooh, that is, a, that is a theological word right there, sanctification. And that is a weighty word. It ha- Depending on who you talk to, they have many different views on that word sanctification. So let me see. Let me see if I can do a definition here. And by the way, um, in verse one, it's sanctified past tense. All right. There's a lot of flipping here between past and present tense in this in this letter, going back and forth. And he doesn't use it past tense in the Hebrew. He's talking about being set apart present. He's writing this to you if. You are set apart, not sanctified in the past, but you are presently set apart. So sanctification, this is the way it can be defined. The action of making or declaring something holy, uh, the action or process of being freed from sin or purified. And uh, this is, you know, for those of you who have done your uh, Protestant Reformation, um, you know, studies, sanctification is really you know, really weighty. Uh, I'll just kind of leave that there, that that word is gone. And what we're going to start seeing here is he talks about Torah. It is exclusively here. He, there's, he doesn't have any Protestant Reformation on his, in his, in his thinking. He's not, not all this theological mumbo jumbo about, um, you know, the fact that we, uh, like all of our sin has been placed onto uh, Yahusha, therefore you can't sin anymore, and this kind of stuff. Again, it depends on who you talk to, because there could be a hundred different um, very in-depth theological thinkers thinking to this and be like, no, you have this wrong, and they all have it very, they would all, of course, disagree with each other, you know, depending on who you talk to. So that's why I don't want to go too much into that right now. Um, but there's a difference uh, in verse 2, then. We see in the Greek, it talks about um, Actually, it doesn't say in uh, verse 2. What does he say? Oh, verse 3. I got that wrong. In verse 3, in the Greek, he talks about, uh, I write unto you of the common salvation. What, what, what do you mean? What, is, what does that mean, common salvation? Uh, but then we see, again, it, in the Hebrew, he talks about set-apartness, being set apart from the world. Um, and so, you know, people can argue all they want about, you know, they're already saved, you know, Blah, blah, blah. But it's like, are you set apart, though? People will say, well, no, I, I'm set apart in Jesus. It's like, well, I, I know I know Yahushua is set apart. I know he is. But does that make you set apart? Just because you believe he's set apart? No, that, that doesn't. It doesn't work like that. that. That's not even in the mindset of these Hebrew thinkers that just because you believe Messiah is set apart does not make you set apart. Just because you believe that he died and resurrected, that does not make you set apart. You know, you can go eat pork and... You are not set apart. That, it doesn't work that way. All right. 
<clears throat> so this is this was one of the in my if I'm reading this letter right, this is one of the big bombshells, and this is why I said that I've had a kind of a new appreciation for this. In verse four, the Hebrew reads differently. Once again, the Hebrew reads differently throughout this whole letter. By the the, the changes are uh, almost more glaring than any other book we've read so far. Rather than people creeping un, in unaware at present, the Greek seems to insinuate that that they're at present. There are people creeping in unaware that he needs to warn you about. Well, the Hebrew version of Jude discusses unbelievers in Old Testament times, while the Greek discusses unbelievers in New Testament times. Again, you're seeing like whoever translated this, I believe he didn't really seem to have that appreciation for the Torah. Um, He was kind of maybe trying to update it for his contemporary use. But this is what it says in the Greek, for there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into, or uh, I'll say into, of our Elohim into lavish, uh, lavishness and denying the only uh, Adonai Elohim, uh, which they, they rip out Yahuwah, and our Adonai uh, um, Yehusha HaMashiach. Well, this is what it says in the Hebrew. For, for some sons of man came in among them. He's not talking about us or his congregation. He's talking about them. Well, who's them? He's talking about the, the wilderness generation and really, really Torah. But I, it, it, he's talking about a past event. Now, this has changed dramatically. Um, I'll, I'll say right here because about two years ago, I wrote a whole um, article on Jude as theorizing that he was talking about uh, the congregation of Shaul, uh, that there was some friction in theology uh, and doctrines between his camp and the camp of Yerushalayim, and I was using this book as evidence. I can't do that anymore um, because I'm not. Uh, no, he he could he could be um, you know exhorting some and and um, and warning others about some events that happened in the past happening presently. But he's just not saying that here. It it just changes. And I really want to point that out in the in the in the language use. Now it is interesting again. I, I don't want to take you know too much of uh, Rob's time. I'm gonna jump back to him. I have so many notes on this guys. Um there you know it really is interesting that you see some very common themes in the New Testament with the 40 years in the wilderness. They wandered 40 years to the wilderness before they came to the promised land. Same thing happens uh, from the death of, and resurrection of Yahusha up until the destruction of, of uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And there was a, exactly 40 years in between. And you see you know, Balaam coming and leading people to sin. You see uh, Balaam showing up in Revelation. You see him showing up in Jude. And you see all these things happening that are there's very similar events. Uh, so that is to be um, you know, taken note of. But there's one other thing that I picked up uh, before I handed it over to Rob. There's one other thing I picked up in verse four that that blew my mind. If you if you can recognize that he's not talking about present tense, because we have I grew up with this this idea that there was something that, that the New Testament was different than the Torah because you know we no longer needed to obey Torah. Now we just needed belief in Yahusha Hamashiach, and that. Nobody believed in him before that. You know, all of a sudden he shows up and then people had to believe him. And if you didn't believe him, you're going to hell. 
And you didn't have to even be obedient. You just need to believe him. Beforehand, they had to be obedient. And they didn't have to believe him. That was the most weird, you know, like, thinking that, you know, but that's what I was taught. I was raised. And I think most Christianity believes that way. Well, again, so if you recognize in verse 4 that he says, For some sons of a man came in among them, not his congregation, but back in Torah, then look how it ends in the, end, uh, the ending of the verse. The steadfast love of Yahuwah and arrogance, and they did not, they, not his congregation, they did not believe in Yahuwah and his Mashiach. I want that, just let that sink in here, guys. Here we have a reference where he's saying that the people who were rebelling uh, in ancient times, in Torah, in Genesis and Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy and even afterwards, they did not believe in his Mashiach, his anointed one. Um, now, that can be taken a few different ways that we'll look at in here. Uh, I think it's a direct reference to Yahushua HaMashiach. And what I'm going to do here is, without diverting too much uh, from this study tonight, I am going to be referring to some passages in the Aramaic Targum. I really do enjoy the Aramaic Targum. I believe that it predates um, Yahushua. And uh, that it was written, it was not oral, um, which brings up a lot of problems if Yahushua is telling his followers to listen to the Pharisees when they, um, when they speak from the seat of Moses, uh, because they're, they're reading the written word. And here's some of the things we see in here, that some of the belief systems, and, and this is also why I believe that the Aramaic Targum was written beforehand. There's no way this was written afterhand. There's no possible way. So here's what we read in Exodus 14, verse 31. And Israel saw the power of the mighty hand by which Yahuwah had wrought the miracles in Mizraim in Egypt. And the people feared before Yahuwah and believed in the name of the word of Yahuwah and in the prophecies of Moshe, his servant. We again see in the next chapter, Exodus 15. Uh, when the people of the house of Israel beheld the signs and manifestations which the Holy One, whose name be praised, had done at, at the Red Sea at the Sea of Sup, and the power of his hand, the children of the captives answered and said one to the other, Come and let us set the crown of majesty on the head of our Redeemer. Who's the Redeemer? Who maketh to pass over and passeth not, who changeth and is not changed. Who is, whose is the crown of the kingdom, the king of kings in this world? Whose too is the kingdom and the world to come forever and ever? Um, actually, I didn't write down the next verse, but they say it's the name of the word of Yahuwah. And we see here in Genesis chapter 40, Blessed shall be the man who trusteth in the name of the word of Yahuwah, and who confideth, uh, and whose confidence is the word of Yahuwah. So here we see, even in the Old Testament times, they had to put their trust in the name of the word. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter 22, and Abraham prayed in the name of the word of Yahuwah and said, Thou art uh, Yahuwah who seeth and art not seen. And so he's, he's praying unto the name. Uh, so that goes back into, all the way into Genesis. Here's another one from Genesis 18. And I will bring food of bread that you may strengthen your hearts and give thanks in the name of the word of Yahuwah. So when you pray, you give thanks in the name of the word. Uh, here's one from... Song of Songs, chapter 7. Return to me, O assembly of Israel. Return to Jerusalem. Return to the house of instruction of the law. That would be the Torah. Return to uh, receive prophecy from the prophets who prophesied. The prophets are prophesying in the name of the word of Yahuwah. 
I got a, a couple more here I want to read. There, there, I had a, I just, I found so many. There's no way I could read them all tonight. But I, I just want to give you a, a sense of the fact that um, I believe that these, these were ripped out of scripture. I think that they, they, they deleted um, the fact that Yahushua is all through the Old Testament. Belief in him which is what Jude is talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who of all the nations are like you, a people saved in the name of the word of Yahuwah. Well, that's interesting. So they're saved in the name of the word. And who is, what, is, what is his name? Yeshua, salvation, right? They're saved in Yeshua. Uh, Exodus 34, and Yahuwah revealed himself in the cloud of glory of his Shekinah, and Moshe stood with him there, and Moshe called on the name of the word of Yahuwah. And one last one, Psalms 118.26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the word of Yahuwah. All right, so uh, with that, I'm going to hand it back. I, I have tons of more notes to go through here tonight. With that, I'm going to hand it back over to Rob. All right, thank you, Noel. Uh, I think you were only on what, verse uh, <laughs> verse 5, 6? That was excellent. I loved it. Verse 4. Uh, yeah. That Chapter 3, then. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm, you guys covered a lot of good stuff, so it knocked out some things on me. So I want to share, uh, I'm going to share a couple things I want to talk about is I'm going to drop here in the chat a slide that I want to talk on regarding Yehuda. And I'll start with this, is that when I read Yehuda and what he's saying here in this, in this book or this, or this scroll, this writing, it's, it's been mainly a warning and rebuke uh, to his brethren. Uh, and as you guys already mentioned, you know, who, he, who Yehuda is, etc. cetera. Uh, he's writing, writing to more or less the believers, the brethren. So in the very beginning here, what I wanted to point out is when he addresses it in verse 1, to the set apart in Yahweh the Father and hidden in Yeshua HaMashiach or concealed in Yeshua HaMashiach. So... I, I thought that was interesting the way he, he worded that, you know, that to those set apart in Yahweh, the Father, and concealed in Yeshua HaMashiach. So he's describing the, the, those who are set apart uh, in that sense. And then, as Michael Noel read, I'm just going to read this quickly, and I want to point out, uh, more or less I summarize here in, in, in the writings, he, he writes, I found it needful to rebuke you by writing that you should strengthen yourselves in the faith, which was given to the set-apart ones. Once again, he's saying that we should, the, the set-apart ones should be strengthening themselves in the faith. Okay, And there's a reason why he's saying that, because he's going to then go into the warnings about the wicked ones and the 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 sons of men that come in and invalidate the steadfast love of Yahweh. So he's telling telling us to strengthen ourselves because the wolves will come in and they will lead people away. 
Because it says here, for some sons of men come in among them of whom you were already written up for the condemnation and they were wicked ones. So there's two sets of people here, in my opinion. The sons of man consist of two sets of people, wicked ones and those who aren't necessarily wicked, but they are prideful and arrogant. And they come in thinking they know what they know. They have knowledge. And they are invalidating the steadfast love of Yahweh by preaching something else. And then, of course, you have the wicked ones that are coming in who are, who are doing also the same thing uh, with, with the wrong intentions, knowing they're doing it that way. So I want to point that out. Uh, and then he says here, but I want to make you known, make to, I want to make you know, known, that he who brought his people out of Mitzrayim killed those who did not believe two times. From what I understand, that two times would be referencing when they're in, uh, in, in the wilderness. From what I understand, that two times is referencing, and we'll get to afterwards. Uh, if anyone else sees that as anything else, I'm, I'd be interested. And then once again here in verse 15, Yahweh will execute judgment on the wicked ones because of their evil deeds. So once again, he warns, does another warning uh, on the wicked ones, what's going to happen. And then my last slide I'll drop and I'll talk about, and then I'll pass it over to Michael. And I do have commentary on differences between the Hebrew and the Greek. I know Nolan, Michael's hit a lot of them, but I still got a few in there that I, I, I want to address, and I'll wait till, till the last go-around. But here is more warnings that we are seeing that Yehuda is presenting. He's telling us once again, uh, this is uh, verses 17 to 25. You must remember the word which was said from the beginning by the sent ones, from the beginning by the sent ones. So these are the prophets, the the people who are, you know, Moshe, etc., that are writing these things down, uh, of our Adonai Yeshua HaMashiach, they said, in the last days, there will be scoffers. They will be walking after their, their own desires. And these are in the flesh and not in the rural. So it's given us some more examples to, to be aware of, and that is why we must strengthen our faith so we are not led away or discouraged by the scoffers, okay? And then here we got five things he's telling, telling us to do, those who are uh, his beloved brothers, the believers. Strengthen yourselves in your faith by the Ruach HaKadosh. That's one. And then stand in the love of Yahweh, two. And then three, be watchful for the mercies of our Adon Yeshua for eternal life. So we must, must be watchful. We must always be watchful. We can't be lazy. We can't be slothful. We must always be on guard in walking in obedience and obeying and, and loving his ways. Uh, four, we must be merciful. So we must show mercy. And five, stay away from the sinners. So that is another key part. I know, I know I've seen mainstream Christianity more or less open their doors to the sinners, welcome them in, make them feel comfortable, etc. Um, 
And there is there is a there is something to that as far as opening your doors, but you must be preaching the truth and not watering it down in order to to come to their level. But uh, we must be bringing them to ours and being done in a loving way in that sense. And then lastly, here, honor and glory and kingship from everlasting and unto everlasting is to those who are able to keep from doubting he who sets you before Ha'adam without any sin. So honor and glory comes to those who can be set before Adonai without any sin and without any doubt. So we must have strength and faith, no doubting in our faith, and we, and we must walk in righteousness. Um, in repentance, in righteousness, and in love. So I think that Yehuda makes it very clear, um, giving us this warning, this rebuke, this direction. That that's what I wanted to pull out of this before I go into some of the uh, other points that uh, we've been talking about. So I wanted to share that for people to see, understand, make sure they 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 can see this and review this themselves. And then I'll pass this over to Michael, and, and when it comes back around to me, I'll point out some more things that I found, unless, of course, Michael and, and Noel covers them uh, in the next go-around here. So, Michael, I hand it off to you. Awesome stuff, both of you guys. Um, that was a great segue, too, for what I'm going to talk about, about doubting. And um, Noel's still a little bit of thunder, but I'm still going to talk about it. So that, uh, I'm going to start at number nine um, in the Hebrew, but the messenger Michael, while disputing with Hasatan, because of the grave of Moshe, did, did not even curse him, so, but said to him, Ha Hadon condemns you. And I've um, been research on this, and Noel mentioned it, but the, you know, Origen, which was a theologian, as well as Clement of Alexandria, Didymus the Blind, and others, attribute this reference to the non-canonical Assumption of Moses book. In the story, Michael sought to bury Moses' body. The devil opposed the burial with the claim that he was lord over the matter, and Moses was a murderer. Rather than assuming the right to condemn Satan for a slander, Michael called the Lord to judge. So that's the summary I found on that. Um, you know, it's still hit or miss whether it's an exact, you know, <clears throat> quote from the Assumption of Moses, but, you know, it's, there's something, there could be something to it. So back to the Greek on number nine. Um, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil. So that word contending is diokrinominos. Thank you for... I just butchered that. But uh, it's used four additional times and means doubting. And I thought that was very interesting. So James 1, 6, we'll talk about that next week. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Romans fourteen twenty three. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, and whatever is not faith from sin. I just want to point out that, you know, that's the same word as doubting. So it seems Moses was doubting a lot when contending with the devil. I thought that was interesting. Um, but in the Hebrew, it says disputing. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But as far as the Greeks concerned, it appears Moses was doubting when he was, you know, talking with the, the devil. Um, number 11, I'll read the Hebrew, and this is another Second Peter cross reference time. So, and woe to them, for they are walking on the road of Cain and falling into the temptation of Balaam because of some prophet and are being killed because of the dispute of Karak. So, 
I guess I'll start off with the Second Peter verse. So you, Second Peter three, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own um, own steadfastness. So it's linking the error of Balaam in the Greek with the error of unprincipled men. Um, but then also walking on the road of Cain. So in the Greek it says gone in the way of Cain. And, but in the Hebrew, walking on the road of Cain. And I thought of the Shema during this part. So the Shema, Deuteronomy. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So you can either walk along the road of Cain or you can walk along the road of Yah on the Most High. Um, I thought that was interesting that the Hebrew went and said, walk on the road of Cain. Um, number 14, read the Hebrew, it says, and Hanok, the seventh from Adam, also prophesied about this and said, look, Hahadon will come with thousands of thousands, ten thousands of set-apart ones. So I want to talk about that there's two sevenths from Adam. You know, everybody goes to Enoch, of course, he is the seventh from Adam. But there was also Lamech. Uh, Lamech was the seventh from Cain, like, you know, seventh on the Cain lineage. Um, and it, he's a shameful example of pride and ungodliness. And Enoch was the example of humility. Sorry. Lamech was the example of pride and, yeah, I said it correctly, pride and ungodliness, while Enoch was an example of humility and godliness. And they both lived in the same generation. So um, it just shows you that the different paths you can take. Um, uh, and what happened to Enoch? He was, you know, he was taken. Um, also, I want to again point out that this says saints in the Greek and set apart ones in the Hebrew. So the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints, while in the Hebrew it says set apart ones. Um, again, it made me think of the Matthew 24 post-trib verse. So it says Matthew 24, 30, and the sign of Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of, sky, of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from four winds. Um, Saints and set apart ones, it's saying he will, the Lord will cometh with his saints. Those are, you know, those are not angels, right? So are, is the Greek in Matthew 24 messengers, which they translated as angels? Or, or is it literal, the 144,000, the saints, or the set apart ones that are coming with the Lord? Or are they two events? Dun, dun, dun. I don't know. But First um, Enoch 1.9 and this is another, you know, even, you know, some seminary people will say that kind of accept Enoch will say Jude was quoting Enoch at, at this verse. So first Enoch uh, 1 9. So and behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and destroy all the ungodly and to conflict, convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you know, take it or leave it, it, you know, it could possibly be Jude's quoting from Enoch here. Um, three more, and then I'll be done. Uh, number 18, I'll read the Hebrew. Then they said to you that in the last days there will be scoffers beside you who will walk after their de desires. Here's my third Second Peter verse. Second Peter 3.3, 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Again, just summarizing that, you know, there's this 
a lot, a lot of people who think that, you know, that they use the same document or it could be like what Noel said, that Jude and Second Peter are very similar. Um, two more, uh, number 23, read both. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And the Hebrew it says, indeed, some of you are with good deeds, but keep a distance from the sinners. Um, it's very different from the Greek. Um, it has nothing to do with fire. <laughs> There's no garment spotted by the flesh. In the Hebrew it says, you're doing good deeds and keep a distance from sinners. I mean, that's total 180 there. Um, Amos 4.11 says, I overthrew you as Yah overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. So that more so of a cross-reference to the Greek, where it's talking about a fire blaze, like you're pulling them out. So he, he snatched you from the fire, yet you did not return to him in Amos 4.11. And then finally, in number 24, I'll, I'm going to read the Greek this time. So it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory, and it, with exceeding joy. So, Strong's word for joy, agalasia, used two other times in the New Testament, and it's awesome. This shows the joy we're going to be inheriting. So, the first one would be in Luke, Luke one forty four. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. That's John. That's the, the baby knowing that the Messiah was there. And he leaped in the womb for joy. That's amazing. And then the second part is Acts 2, 44. This is the first century apostles. And those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. As anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their, their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That word gladness is the joy. So to summarize, you know, ba the baby John leaping for joy when he first recognized the Messiah and the first century apostles in Acts 2, that will be the same joy we feel when we're in his presence, as Jude 24 said. Hallelujah. That's what I got for Jude, off to know. All right. You know, you had mentioned there, Michael, about walking on the road to Cain. And... Something that struck me there, let me let me read verse 11 again in the, the Greek. And it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Now that's, you know, obviously none of us want to go in the way of Cain. Um, but then look at what it says here in the Hebrew. And woe unto them, for they are walking on the road of Cain. Well, I find that really fascinating. Because what is that? What When you think of Cain walking on the road what do you guys visualize in your head i hope everyone has realized by this point that cain is attributed to being the first freemason and it's a, it's actually in the word freemason right you you have the freedom to go about and be a mason from city to city you can wander in fact freemasons famously um especially if you rise to a certain rank are you can go visit any Freemason lodge in the world that you want. You are free as, as a Mason to go about and do so. A lot of people will say that Nimrod was the first Freemason, but uh, it was clearly Cain. In fact, we've uh, discussed in this group, and I believe I have pointed out, that in some 
extra biblical passages we have read has referred to Cain as the first master Mahon, which is a uh, kind of, you know, similar to master Mason, but he was called master Mahon, which is really interesting. So, you know, and what did he do? Cain went and built the first city. He wandered, he walked on the road, built the first city. Something to kind of think about there. I feel like that's a little bit of a jab at this whole uh, secret society business of his own time. All right. That being said, I wanted to just throw that out there because I actually didn't really have that in my notes, but I wanted to say that before I forgot. All right. In verse 8, we see a big difference in the Greek and the Hebrew again. And actually, there's a passage that's completely gutted out. So um, apologies if Michael, if you already commented on this, or Rob. And it says uh, in the Greek, likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. This is, of course, going back in the homosexual theme of um, Sodom and Gomorrah. This is all, of course, completely removed from the Hebrew. Despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Okay. Well, look at how it how it uh, phrases it here in the Hebrew. And likewise, those who despise the authority and curse the kingship. Now, there is actually two times in this book that we see the word curse. There might be more. I've, I counted two. And neither one of them appear in the Greek, and they give a, a very different um, um, kind of take on this. So here's the thing about kingship um, within... Hebrew society within Torah, the kings of Yasharel and Yehuda, the two houses, the northern and the southern kingdom. But one time under, of course, David and Solomon, they were united. But for the rest of the time, they were split. Uh, they they were believed to serve as Yahuwah's agents to rule the nation. They were his like they were like kind of like a, uh, you know, David was anointed. He was that's the word for where we get Messiah. He was anointed. He was Yahuwah's anointed um, over the kingdom. They were, as such, they were expected to observe his covenants and laws to defend the nation and engage in offensive war when deemed necessary and to rule over the people with justice, of course, and righteousness. All right. So let's see here. I have a few verses. I don't know if I really want to turn to them. Uh, here's one in Deuteronomy. Let's see if I can turn to this real quick. I didn't have it in front of me. Oh, Okay, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, here it is. So let's see what we have here in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. And it talks about the, the kingship. When you have come into the land that Yahuwah, your Elohim, is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom Yahuwah, your Elohim, will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. So <laughs> don't, he, he's, not, he's not allowed to uh, sell you back into slavery for his riches, uh, something that our kings have done to us. Since Yahuwah has said to you, you must never return that way again. And if, unfortunately, we have... Uh, return that way. And he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold, he must not acquire in great quantity for himself, which kind of speaks against all the uh, <laughs> the kings and elites in this world. I, I think that like uh, disqualifies basically all of them. But it's kind of interesting here that uh, that to see that passage removed. Now, I want to we see the same thing happen. Uh, the word curse comes up in the following verse, verse nine. 
I lost it. So let's see if I can find it. There it is. And in the Greek, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moshe, uh, durst not, I like that word, durst not, bring him against him a railing accusation. So it's basically saying the Greek that he did not accuse the accuser. Um, however, that's completely missed. Uh, got it out in the Hebrew. And it says uh, that while da- disputing with Hasatan, uh, because of the grave of Moshe, did not even curse him so, but said to him, Ha'adon condemns you. I was actually in a discussion recently with Dave, uh, he's in here, about uh, a couple of days ago about, you know, people who curse others. And there are those, um, you know, kind of they come amongst our ranks and to our community in and out who feel that they are given the authority to actually put curses on other people. They will curse people in the name of Yahuwah. And uh, so here we see twice in this letter that he says that we are not to curse the kingship and that even the angels will not curse uh, Hasatan. And um, I, I, I like that a lot better because the thing is, it's like to accuse Satan... Um, no, we don't want to go around and be the accuser, but uh, Scripture does accuse him. It says he's a liar. He's a dirty, filthy liar. And uh, that's an accusation. Um, it accuses him of many different things, and one of which is that he accuses the set apart. So <laughs> so actually, I, I appreciate that a lot more. It, it, for me, it pulls away the confusion. It's like, okay, there's, it's completely different to state a fact that he lies about everything. And we went over that in our Revelation study. And uh, the fact that, you know, that we are not to curse him, right? Like he's performing a job, his duty, and we're to let Yahuwah be the one to settle the score. Um, so I like that a lot better. All right, let's see what else I have. I don't have a lot more notes on the last part of the chapter. I went over in verse uh, 10, really earlier commentary about how we really see this idea of the 40 years in the wilderness being replayed in the thinking of this generation that they were also like a 40-year generation that you know they had to get it right and at the end of it you know the messiah was knocking at the door he's coming swiftly he's coming to judge and he's uh uh, some people didn't make the cut just like the wilderness generation what else do we have Uh, michael talked about uh the assumption of moses uh we talked about cain Okay, so this is something that is missing, and I also uh, mentioned that I, I was sad about. Uh, verse 13, we do not see the... Uh, w- w- verse 13 in the Greek says, uh, it, describing these people as wandering stars. The, the word there, I believe, is it, it's planet. Uh, planets. He's actually calling people that are deceived planets, which is really interesting. Uh, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now that quote, where he's taking that from is actually uh, the book of Enoch once again. Uh, I will point out, though, that that is actually gone from the Hebrew. I'm a little sad about that. Obviously, the guy who did translate this was probably also a fan of Enoch, and he's like, I think I'm going to put this little extra flourish in there. And this is where he's uh, taking it from. Enoch chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. All who are in the heavens know what is transacted, that the heavenly luminaries change not their paths, that each rises and sets regularly, everyone at its proper period, without transgressing the commands. 
And so the picture that is given in Enoch, uh, we, I could say this is scriptural because the, the command, the, the picture that is given in Enoch is that if a star were to become a planet, they were to become a wandering star by the, by the very name, uh, they would uh, be transgressing the commands of Yahuwah. So just think about this in the Copernican Revolution when, the, when we were taught that we lived on a planet. What are they actually telling us there? Think about that. It's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's, the intel community is constantly trying to break up families and, and make us, uh, uncle- Satan's always trying to make us unclean. Hopefully that wasn't a r- riling accusation there. I guess it was. Uh, but he is. He's trying to make us unclean so he can accuse us. And um, they want us to believe we live on a wandering star, uh, always transgressing the law of Yahuwah. We also see in uh, the Testament of Naphtali, which talks about the same thing. I'm going to read it really quickly here. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Be therefore not eager to corrupt your doings through covetousness or with vain words to beguile your souls. Because if ye keep silence and purity of heart, ye shall understand how to fold fast uh, the will of Elohim and to cast away the will of Beliar. Uh, that would be Hasatan. Sun and moon and stars change not their order. So do ye also change not the law of Elohim in the disorderliness of your doings. The Goyim, the Gentiles, went astray and forsook Yahuwah, and changed their order. So here, according to the Testament of Tali, it's saying, uh, the, if, if you call yourself a Gentile, according to Hebrew thinking, you have, uh, you have gone astray. You are not in covenant with Yahuwah, and you've changed your order. You are a planet, a wandering star. You do not want, you know, look, we hear about the, the, the wheat and the tares. You don't want to be a tear. We hear about the sheep and the goats. You don't want to be a goat. We hear about the stars and the planets. You don't want to be a planet. You want to be a star. You want to be fixed in your path. You want to obey the law of Yahuwah. Um, anyways, all that to say, it's a little sad to see that go um, in, this, in this passage, but it, it's still thematically there because I have pointed out Enoch does talk about it. In fact, there's a passage I, didn't, I, didn't, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, he goes and Enoch goes to Gehenna, to the Lake of Fire, and he sees these huge mountains rolling around, and they're on flames. And he asks, what are those? And he found out those were stars that uh, gave up their first estate, that they wandered. And because of their transgression, they are being punished in there. So uh, that is a, um, obviously a scriptural theme. All right, what else do we have here? And as I pointed out, the, the good news is, is that Enoch is still quoted from in here, as Michael pointed out. Another thing that's interesting is that in verse 16, Let's see what verse 16 says in the Hebrew. It's, it's very different again than the Greek. I'm not going to take the time to read the Greek, but here's what the Hebrew says. For there is no firmness in his mouth. Their inside is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Well, this actually is a quote from Psalm uh, 5, verse 10. So that's kind of a fun little fact. We see in, as Michael pointed out, uh, 2 Peter 3.3 3 is quoted in verses 17 through 18, so I won't go over that again. But here's one thing that um, I really like how he closes on. We see the whole family, the holy family at work, as described in verses 20 through 21. So let's read that together. But you, beloved brothers, strengthen, strengthen yourselves in your faith by the Ruach HaKodesh. All right? So... Boom, right there we see the Ruach HaKodesh. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to strengthen 
uh, ourselves uh, in our faith by the Ruach. All right. And then he goes straight into and stand in the love of Yahuwah. Who's Yahuwah? He's Elohim, uh, the, the most high Elohim of Yashorel. He's our heavenly father. And, and his name is stripped out of the Greek. And I actually love this because, uh, you know, I, whenever I talk to Christians all the time, they're like, oh, no, you know, Torah is like, you know, that's not love. I believe in love. My God is love. Jesus is love. But here it says Yahuwah is love. And that's something that goes beyond the understanding standing of of anyone who thinks his covenant is so awful and horrible like and it's not guys it's not a burden it is his you know the yoke is easy the burden is light um and yahuwah is very loving to bring us into a covenant with him to bring us into a marriage covenant that is love like being adulterous and breaking that covenant is not loving but he's not the one committing adultery on us we're the ones that did it Right, and then we see right after that, and the mercies of our Adon Yeshua for eternal life. So we see the Son here, and we see all throughout the Torah. And I'm not going to read the passages here. How Yahuwah is merciful. Well, we see right here it is uh, Yeshua, our salvation, that He is merciful, and that's why He is, of course, our Savior. So I really liked how that ended there. I have one more note. Let's see what's verse 24. Uh, let's see what do we got here. Okay, so we see a big difference once again, uh, presenting uh, faultlessness in the Greek. Let's see what it says. Now unto him that is able to keep you from fa uh, fa falling and to present you faultless. Uh, okay, so that's the, the key phrase there, present you faultless. Now, I think, that, I think that the translation is it's pretty close, but the thing is with the whole sanctification and you know, all these like doctrines we pushed in there, that th th how I was raised to read this is that I am faultless because Jesus on the cross. You know, there's that famous, uh, that meme you guys have probably seen where like a salesman is slapping something, like maybe like uh, COVID or something like that. He's like, you could, you know, you could, he slaps and he's like, you could fit a lot of blah, blah, blah into this, uh, into this, you know, fill in the blank. So I like to like pretend that he's slapping the cross. He's like, you could, you know, you could fit a lot of doctrine into this bad boy right here. And, so there's a huge difference between the fact that um, uh, that Yahusha is sinless, and therefore uh, all my sin has been taken away. That you know he looks at me and he doesn't see any sin because he just looks at his son. Versus what it says in the Hebrew here, uh, but he who is able to keep you without debting, uh, uh, doubting, and set you before Ha Adon without any sin. And what he's saying here is that. Uh, we have just gone through this letter where he gives examples of all the people that sinned. They rebelled. You don't want to be Cain. You don't want to be Korah. You don't want to be the angels, the watchers that gave up their first estate to create the giant babies. You don't want to be those people. You want to be, you know, you want to be uh, an Enoch. You want to be a Moshe. You want to be a Yeshua, a Joshua, as in Moshe and, you know, you want to be these people. You want to be the people who were obedient, and they could be presenting to the Father as obedient and without sin. All right, so that is my closure on this book. We have probably a lot more to talk about, but I'm going to hand it back to Rob. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. You guys covered so much that um, I'll be probably short. A uh, couple things I want to add, add to this is 
that uh, verse 3 we see in the, the Hebrew, I found it needful to rebuke you by writing. So once again, I wanted to come back to that, that rebuking and warning to the brethren. I just want to emphasize that's what I believe Yehuda is doing here is he's writing this to warn the brethren of these things, of what we just discussed. Uh, verse 6, it says here, and also the messengers who sinned and were thrust down from above. And a lot of the, the, the thought is the angels fell from heaven or that, 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 that phrase, fallen, the fallen ones fall from heaven, etc., well, here it, it points out they were thrust down. They were kicked out. Uh, they, they were uh, forced down uh, because they have sinned. So I just want to point that out as a good uh, description. And then we see in verse 9, uh, the grave of Moshe compared to the body of Moshe in the Greek. And also it says... Uh, that he did not even curse him so, but said to him, Ha'adon condemns you. And we see the little note here that condemns you is punish you. So Michael's telling Hathatan that Ha'adon is going to punish you. So I think that is very telling. And also I want to point out once again, I thought Noel hit it right on the head when talking about the 40 years and the 40 years, talking about here in verse 11 with the falling into temptation of Balaam, you know, walking on that road of Cain. I thought that was excellent to bring up and, and thinking about for us as another reminder, let's not fall into the temptations of Balaam, into the things of this world, to our desires, uh, the things of the flesh. Uh, there's, that's why it's talking about being set apart and focusing on, on Yah. And in verse 16, we see here, for there is no firmness in his mouth. Okay, talking about the, just, he just finished talking about the judgment of the wicked ones because they're evil deeds. For there is no firmness in their mouth. And a couple verses up, we see that it's talking about the being like the waves of the sea, being wishy-washy. You know, they're not, there's no firmness in the mouth. They, they change their stories. They, they uh, change the perspective. They, there's no consistency. There's no truth in them. And so once again, we see that here as a, uh, the personality of the wicked ones and evil ones, and liars, etc. They're, they're all over the place. There's no firmness in their mouth. There's no truth. And their inside is destruction. So uh, what comes out of the mouth uh, shows you what's, what's on the inside there. And then verse 18, I'll touch on in the last days, there were scoffers beside you who will walk after their desires. Once again, their desires. So as we are walking in the light, we are to uh, examine those around us who are uh, teaching or sharing the, the word, the, the gospel, and we have to really examine them. Are they, are they, what's their intentions? Are they doing this in love and humility? 
or are they walking after their desires to gain something, whether it's uh, notoriety, pride, uh, fame, uh, you know, any of those things. So, you know, once again, additional warnings. So I just want to end with, besides all of the, the commentary that was discussed on the differences here, uh, my overview is, is that Yehuda is writing to us, giving us warning to stay strong in faith and uh, being careful with the wicked ones that are all around and leading and pushing people off the off the, the right path. And so let's let's keep our strengthen our faith and walk in purity and love. That's what I want to end with. And I'll pass it over to Michael. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. That's all I have for Jude. Uh, I can open it up or if no one wants to have closing comments. Thus concludes our reading from the book of Yehuda. So it is now opened up. We are roundtabling this. Anybody else have any thoughts or observations on the book? Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay, good. Um, so I have uh, quite a few comments. And as I'm saying some of my comments, I'll drop some stuff in the post. So. Um, First is my um, standard comment about set apart. So everywhere you see set apart, actually the word in Hebrew is holy, um, kadosh. And of course, you know, in certain, depending on the context, it could be sanctified, but the word is holy. Okay. So in verse one and three is talking about holy and holy ones. And then also, um, when he, you asked me to comment about the word that he used for the sent one. Um, so actually, he's not saying sent one, he's, he's saying shaliach, which um, shaliach is apostle, you know, like the 12 apostles. So they are, um, they are called shaliach, shlichim, okay? Um, and you can also uh, translate it as a messenger, okay? But not like a messenger in a way of uh, I'd, um, like um, like angels in the Bible. Sometimes they they are messengers. Um, usually, when you see Shaliach, you know that it's like a human being, not necessarily a divine messenger like a, a malach like an angel so you would say that the word would be most best translated to apostle is that correct yes absolutely yeah um and also in verse 17 just so you can see like it's so the in hebrew it's so um, the, the difference is, is so subtle that you can miss it when you translate it. But in verse 17, he actually says sent ones, okay? Sent ones in plural. But in verse, um, I think either one or three, 
he he's actually saying apostle. Um, then verse oh, four. Can you can you can you clarify the difference then between the sent ones and just so I'm clear, the sent ones in verse seventeen. Uh, what what would the sent ones be implying? So, in my opinion, uh, many people could be sent ones, right? But the shaliach, the apostle, there are only like twelve of them. Like that's a, I, I think, I think that that's like a very special uh, position. I mean, Yeshua handpicked them. Well, right. So, uh, in it's probably. Acts chapter two or three, right in there, uh, they discussed replacing Judas or Yehuda, uh, and I know that Yaakov was uh, in the qualification running there for that, um, on the basis that to be an apostle, according to them there, that you had to be with Yahusha from the beginning of his ministry to the end. Um, so that, I know that's kind of interesting connection there, and um, something I'll be thinking about a lot. Um, and it, it, I'll let just to point this out too for anyone who was there on Thursday when we read for through the Gospel of Gamaliel, that was interesting as well because it actually pitted Yaakov in the garden with Yahusha when he was betrayed, and it said that he fled with the others. Um, so I find that really interesting because it, it is it is backing up what Acts says that he was there with him the whole time, even though the Gospels never really mention him. Yeah, and right here is calling Yaakov, Yaakov Ashaliach, basically Apostle James. That's what he's, he's calling him. Interesting. Yeah, and then uh, verse 4, um, um, he's, in English it says condemnation, but actually in Hebrew it says punishment. So, um, um um, where is it? So written up for this condemnation, actually, it's punishment. Like they are going to be punished. It, I, I think punish, the word, at least in Hebrew, the word punish is way stronger than condemn. Um, um, and then verse 6, it's angels, malachim. Um, you know, I would definitely stick to angels rather than just messengers. Um, then in verse 8 and, and verse 25, he's saying, um, eh, and likewise those who despise the authority and curse the kingship. I just want you to know that in verse 8 and 25, he's not saying kingship, he's saying kingdom. I think there is a difference between kingship and kingdom. Um, That's a, that is a huge difference. Exactly. <laughs> would, you, would you think there that it's talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Yahushua, or what's the kingdom you think he's talking about? I thought he's talking about the kingdom of Yahushua. That's fascinating. Again. Yeah. And then in on uh, verse... Um, Verse 9, again, it's angel, and then instead of condemns, so they used present tense condemns, right? It's actually, in Hebrew, it's a will punish, will punish. So that's the verse of um, um, Archangel Michael, 
um, basically counting on on Yah to pan that will punish Satan. Um, then um, in the in verse um, five is mentioning Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, and in verse seven is mentioning Sodom, uh, which is um, Sodom. You know. Um, and it reminded me of uh, when we read the Hebrew Revelation, chapter 11, 8, where it, he says, and their corpses will be thrown on the plains of the set apart, or actually the holy city, which is called Sedom and Mitzrayim, because our Adon was crucified there. I don't know, it just brought that verse to my um to, to the front of my mind, you know, while I was reading. I thought it's interesting that John mentioned Mitzrayim and Sodom and, Sodom, and then um, uh, Jude, uh, Judah also does the same thing. Um, then um, on verse 11, so I, I must say that I almost stopped completely at verse 11. It took me forever to finish the chapter because verse 11 got me into a rabbit hole. So in verse 11, he's saying, and woe to them, for they are walking on the road of Cain and falling into the temptation of Bilam because of some prophets and are being killed because of the dispute of Korah. So I... Um, it really got me <laughs> on a rabbit hole here, like, well, why Korach, why? okay? Um, I could understand the first two, but Korach re really got me. So I want to share a few of my thoughts on that verse. So um, I, I think this verse um, ultimately um, emphasizes, and I'll explain why, emphasizes that faith alone without obedience will not, will not allow one to be sanctified slash set apart, if that's what you like to call it, or holy. Okay, so kind represents sins committed by men towards fellow men. Bil'am represents sin, sins committed by men towards Yah, right? Because he represents uh, idolatry. Um, Korach represents a whole plethora of sins. I mean, I can write a, 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 at least a long article about, a, you know, the, all the sins that are represented by what Korach did when he um, led a rebellion against Moses and, and Aaron. Um, he literally broke almost all of the Ten Commandments in his rebellion. Uh, but for me, one of the biggest sins that Korach is represent, represented, that Korach represented in his words um, um, here, and let me just drop this verse first in the post. So this is um, number 16.3. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Um, if you start meditating on this verse, you will immediately hear voices of uh, communists and fascists uh, coming through. 
like everyone is equal um, and um, and no one will own anything and everyone will be happy, you know, um, sort of like this. Um, needless to say that Koch was one of the richest uh, men um, in the whole of the, the, the nation of Israel at the time. Uh, but he was basically leading people by selling them the story that everyone is holy. Um, so in here, Korach is insinuating that all the Israelites are automatically considered holy just because they all experience the Exodus and they all witness the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. This statement is in complete and utter opposition to Yah's directive. Um, and I want to show you the opposite verse to this. Um, it's from Leviticus, um, I just dropped it, Leviticus 19.2. In, in, in this verse, Yase tells Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be, not you are always, you are already holy, of course, yeah, you are holy because, you know, I love you. No, you shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay, so he's talking about future tense, meaning you need to work your way to become holy. And then he follows up the whole of chapter 19. Once he says you shall be holy, he explains how we are going to be holy. Okay, um, it's, it's a chapter full of commandments ending with the following verse okay so when he ends explaining all the commandments and how we can be holy okay uh, the last verse 37 says therefore you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them i am the lord so basically for me the 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 statement of Korach uh, telling uh, uh, Moshe and Aaron, everyone is already holy, is in complete opposition to what Yah is saying. Um, you need to observe all of my statutes and all of my judgments, and only then you, you may become holy. And I think this is what Jude, I mean, it, it's kind of like this letter is like, in my opinion, is like a cliff note. Uh, to people that are already well versed with the Torah and, and with Yeshua's teachings. And the cliff note is, uh, remember Koach? Remember what he did? Okay, don't, don't go in his way. Don't, don't follow his example. Holiness is not something that is granted quickly and easily without obedience and work. Um, so that's kind of like, um, I got a little bit passionate about it uh, because I, I really talk a lot about the rebellion of Korach. It represents a lot of stuff. Um, and um, the last thing I wanted to say is um, on verse 18, verse 18 actually um, was a little bit amusing reading it in Hebrew. So he is... Um, in English, he says, in the last days, there will be scoffers besides you who will walk after their desires. 
in Hebrew is actually using a funny word. He's saying clowns. Like he's literally calling these people clowns. So he's saying, in the last days there will be clowns um, around you who will walk after their desires. And that reminded me of a verse uh, from Proverbs. Um, and I'm going to drop that verse in the post. And that verse says, how long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers actually is using the same word that Jude is using, silly ones, clowns, delight in mockery or silliness? and fools hate knowledge. So I think it kind of like all um, ties up together with everything that all of us saw in this um, little letter. Um, and I think that this letter is really all about realizing that faith without works and obedience is empty and meaningless. And that's all I had to say, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's spot on. And, you know, again, I say this a lot, but it's true. I mean, growing up in the church, I was not taught this stuff. They did not spend time in Torah, the Old, Old Testament. We would read like the prophets if it was pointing towards, you know, Messiah or whatever. But like Korah is, uh, should cause everybody to. Uh, Balaam as well, but uh, Korsha caused everyone to pause and perhaps you know reevaluate our lives and and maybe even shiver and and repent because like that was serious. Like if it's it's just really odd that uh, Yah the Most High would be like yeah yeah like <clears throat> I'm putting down this rebellion. I'm killing all of you guys who rebelled against me. But oh, but you know it's too bad, uh, Korra, you weren't born couple thousand years later or a thousand years later because you know that it's all going away at this point uh, you were just born in the wrong generation and um yeah that's all i have to say about that i guess and is it does anybody else have any thoughts on this chapter I, I do have, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to ask if anyone saw anything or heard anything new or I wanted to share, but go ahead. Go ahead, Mary. Sure. So, yeah, I, um, in verse 9, and I know you guys mentioned, everyone talked about this, but verse 9 where it talks about, um, I'm trying to find it now, um, that Michael, um, he didn't even curse um, Satan, but he said, Hadon condemns you. Um, it did remind me of, I think it's Ascension of Moses. Um, and I was trying to find it here now, but I couldn't find it. But I remember um, a book club reading from Zen, and I think they read through that. And it was over the, um, it was like Hasatan was accusing him because of that he killed somebody. And, um, and there was a dispute over that. And then what stood out to me was that Michael didn't condemn him, but he said, um, you know, Hadon or I think it was Yahuwah condemn you, something like that. Also reminded me that happened another time. And, um, it's in one of the books of Adam and Eve where, um, 
Satan came and like set to fire the cave. I don't know if it was the cave of treasures book or something like that, but he set to fire the cave. And, um, there was an angel who was sent to keep the fire from burning the cave, but it said that the angel was not able to do anything else because he didn't have the authority. He just said like, you know, Mayahua can condemn you or Mayahua, um, curse you, something like that. Like he didn't have the authority. He just, so, and, and I think Yahusha, the word it said had to come and like pretty much kick Satan out. So to me, it seems like it sounds like a rank kind of thing. Like, you know, we have armies and we have ranks like you have generals that you you just fall in rank. And so I don't know if, you know, Satan still has some kind of rank and and people that are, you know, not in, in that rank don't have the authority. And I and obviously we we have authority over our own lives and you know we can take authority of of that. But as far as further than that, I just wonder if you know it's kind of a rank thing. Um, and looking at the other verses in the chapters, and when Roni was talking about the rebellion of Korah, I think that was kind of a rank thing. Also, Moshe was there; he had um, the authority from Yahuwah, and they were kind of stepping up against that. And then you know we see what happened to them, but. That's kind of what it seems like. And I, I kind of see that happening even around now, even from like, you know, we have the outwardly bad people. If you look at like the the left versus the right, the left looks outwardly bad and then the right looks good. But they're kind of two. I, I think I look at them like two wings of the same bird. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But um, it, it and I just I don't think that we. Um, you know, as in the flesh will have authority over that. I think that's kind of a bigger thing that will be handled by yeah, Yahusha himself. But um, but anyways, I kind of all kind of tied in from that from that verse nine. Um, so those were kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, I I like that you brought that up because uh, Nolan Michael, no Michael and I, I I think it was when we were doing Yokinen, uh, we had talked about. I can't remember which chapter it was, but I brought up where the angels are sent out and they're sent out for, from what I understand, the way, I can't remember which book I was reading this in or where, where we pulled this from, they're sent out with uh, a task to do and specifically that, that task and nothing much more than that. And and so it brings to that point where you mentioned that they put out the fire, but that's what he was there to do, uh, but not do anything more. So I, I believe there is something to that, that they are dispatched for certain orders, and they are to carry them out in obedience, but anything more that they may do may be going outside their instructions, which, which can then... Uh, more or less put them in contempt due to them meddling with, you know, the things of this world, which maybe they, they should not be doing so without authority. So that's something to think about. All right, guys, give you another moment to uh, make any comments or even ask questions or anything else you have or forever hold your peace. So, sorry, it's me again. So I do have actually a question for you guys on verse six. 
where it's asking, um, and I don't know if Ronit maybe has any insight on the Hebrew word for here, but where it says they are talking about the messengers who sinned and were thrust down from above. They are being hidden in darkness until the future day of judgment. Do you think that he was referring to the future day of judgment, which would have happened then with the destruction of the temple and, you know, Yahusha's coming before the millennial kingdom? Or do you think that future day of judgment, because he said future day, not like soon to come, I don't know, judgment, but do you think that's for like now, like the end? What are your, your thoughts on that? Well, my thought is that he's talking about uh, most likely the, well, he contextually he's talking about Enoch. And so he's talking about the watchers. And uh, we, now, as there were 200 of them, one of them was Azazel, and he was judged differently than the other 199. He specifically was never being released. He was going to be locked up forever and just th thrust straight into the fire. Um, but the others, uh, the other Sam Jaza and the other 100, 199, they appear to be released eventually. But when it happens, it is very close to their, they are also going to be judged and thrown in the lake of fire. But for whatever reason, they appear to be released. And we see that uh, they talk about, uh, 70 generations. There's a lot of questions about what these 70 generations are. Are they 70 jubilees? 70, you know, what is a generation? How many years? So on and so forth. Uh, and this is what I talked about with the timeline, uh, looking at Enoch's 10-week calendar. Some people would say it's only seven weeks uh, that they added on three. But uh, according to the 10 weeks, you see that the the Watchers are actually released after the Kingdom of Messiah. And they appear to be released with you. You never see a I've, I've yet to see a connection. Um, like for example, in, in Enoch, it never says that Hasatan will be thrown in prison, uh, but it just says the watchers will be released, and it's going to be at the very end of the last week that they're released, and then they are on the earth for a little bit of time for whatever reason, and then they're thrown into like fire. And so you see the same thing with Hasatan, right? That he is thrown in prison and then he's released for a short season or for a short time to go about and deceive. So that's what I think about. I think that the Watchers um, have been released and that they're coming up on their judgment really quickly. So that's my two cents. I would be mostly in alignment with that. Same. Mostly, you're not a hundred percent on board. <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. The the only thing um, I'm thinking on that is if if we're talking about um, uh, specifically the watchers, as you're talking about, yeah, I'm I'm on board with that. Um, but if you're talking about uh, others, then I, I think it could fall in. There was judgment done to them um, prior to the end, and I think. I think that was the question. So, yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Plus, there's judgment for what they did, which is what you were talking about thrown in. And it's 70 times 70, some people estimate. And then there's the eternal judgment, which we all, you know, have to face. And that's what you described in Revelation 20. Um, it's just we'll be, Lord willing, resurrected, you know, to the uh, everlasting life while they'll be thrown in. So I don't know which judgment it's talking about there. 
Yeah, we see the Watchers uh, being released for the short season, if you will. And also, we read in Daniel where it talks about the uh, the Dominion will have a short time at the end, too. So you're seeing the Watchers and the former regime Dominion rising up. And so that's that's what I see happening now, which such a delusion that is going on for us who can can see. It's just amazing uh, the mass delusion over this world, what's taking place. And it's, it's very difficult to see through uh, if you are not a seeker of truth and a lover of Yah in that sense. You've got to be both uh, in, that, in that because it does mention those who seek the truth. We read that in Yochanan specifically uh, regarding the, those seeking truth. No, do you agree with what Leah's talking about in chat? Uh, she asked one week is equal to 700 years. You know, okay, so here's my here's my thing on that. I, when I did that that paper that I then read into the video, the 7,000 line uh, the seven thousand year timeline deception, uh, which is probably it, I, it's quickly escalating. It'll probably be, you know, a hundred thousand uh, view video. Um, I spent a couple days, like almost pulling my hair out, just with a calculator, trying to line up Enoch's weeks with anything historical. Um, I tried the LXX, the Masoretic. I tried um, each week equating a thousand, each week equating seven hundred, and I couldn't get anything. I couldn't get anything exact. And I, I like the idea of seven hundred years, um, you know, abstractly. But then if I try to put it, you know, if I try to line it up with biblical dates as we're told and all that kind of stuff, it, it's not perfect. So I kind of, I, again, I, I would like to think that there are exact years. Sometimes I've kind of just described them as epochs, uh, meaning that it's a segment of time. There was a segment of time in the first week, a segment of time in the second week, uh, a segment of time in the third week. And the thing about Enoch's weeks is that he tells us the events of where they begin and end. So you could at least line that up. You could go, okay, uh, the flood ends the second week, um, which, by the way, according to the LXX, was like the year 2200 after creation or something in that ballpark. So we're already 700 years off. We would be, that would be the flood within the third week if we're going 700 years. It doesn't even line up with the thousand years. It's over 2000 years. Um, so again, there's, there's nothing perfect on that that I have seen. If, there's probably much brighter minds out there who could crunch the numbers and figure it out.